Well, church, it's an honor to be here with you today. What a blessing and honor it is, I should say. Uh, We're going to be continuing on our series today in the book of James. And so if you have your Bibles, turn them with me now to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Just as a bit of a recap, uh, for those who haven't met us yet, sorry, let me say that first. My name is Mihir Sarkar. I serve on staff here as the Director of Integration and Mixed Groups at Hope Markham. Um, We've been working through this series of James with Pastor Paul Little. And so as a bit of a recap... Uh, we've seen that the book of James, I just want to go through a few key points here. The book of James was written to Jewish believers who were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. And I would say that as we've been going through this over the past few months, uh, there's really two kind of key doctrines that have been shining through as we've been studying the book. And so let me go through those now. Firstly, this is one of the things we've seen. We've seen that salvation is by faith alone, but it is demonstrated by our obedience And the way in which we live demonstrates that faith we have in Christ. And so that's kind of the first big idea we've seen. And then secondly, I would say that James is often referred to as the book of wisdom or the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, Much of the book references wise living or wisdom from from above as our series has been called. And so those are two two of the big ideas we've seen. Uh, We have a lot of text to cover today, so we're going to go straight into it. Uh, But before that, One last thing I'll say, last week, Pastor Paul Little took us through chapter 3, and he did a fantastic job at that, and we saw how uh, we are actually called to be peacemakers within the church, because the early church at that time had a lot of disunity within it, and so there's this call for all of us to be peacemakers within the church. I think James chapter 4 today actually carries on that same theme, and he actually today addresses the major problem of worldliness in the heart of a believer. So the big problem today is worldliness in the hearts of believers. Now, what is worldliness? Um, Oxford Dictionary, I think, does a great job at this. They define worldliness as concern that one may have with material values or ordinary life rather than a spiritual existence. And so I would even go so far as to say it's really a focus that we can have, that all of us are prone to have, where we have our eyes on ourselves or the things of this life rather than focused on Christ and having our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to get right into it now. Uh, Look with me at James chapter 4. Open up your Bibles there. James chapter 4 verses 1 to 12. We're going to see four ways in here that believers must address the problem of worldliness. In verses 1 to 4, we'll see how we need to recognize worldliness. In verses 5 to 6, how we can receive grace. In verses 7 to 10, how to repent in humility. In verses 11 to 12, to reserve judgment. Let's read these together. God's word says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Father in heaven. Father, as we examine your word today, help us to understand this problem of worldliness and how it affects us, your people. You desire for us, Lord, to walk in intimate relationship with you and to turn from the things of this world. But when we get consumed, Lord, with the things of this life and this world, help us to make that turn, to turn away and to realize that Christ is so much greater. Help us to understand the glory and the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as we see today. And Father, I pray that despite my words, it would be your spirit that works in power through your word here today. Draw us closer to you and transform our lives for your glory, Lord. And then for those who are here today who may not know you, Father, I pray that today you would work in their hearts as well so that their hearts may be opened and today might even indeed be the day of their salvation. And so we lift up this time to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, so looking at the text, let's take a look at it. We're going to see that the very first thing that we need to do in verses 1 to 4 is this. We need to recognize worldliness. We need to recognize worldliness. So James starts off in verse 1. This is what he says. He says, what, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And so James here, he's writing to believers and he's saying openly that these believers are fighting against one another. Now, we aren't told specifically what it is that they're fighting about. But we are told that, or we see in this, the motivation behind these fights. We're told about the heart state of these believers. You see, scripture constantly shows us this principle. It tells us that our conduct is a result of our hearts. And so the quarrels and the fights that are caused are being caused here in these believers by passions that are at war within them, by passions that are at war in their hearts. Now, I think it's important for us to understand uh, the meaning of this word passion. Passion here comes from the Greek word hedone. And normally I wouldn't point that out, but I think this really it points to a word that you may recognize today. Hedone is the, is the root word of the word hedonism. And it's this idea... That somehow, if we completely indulge all of our desires, if we indulge ourselves fully in all of the passions and the desires and the things that we want, that somehow we're going to be satisfied. But God's word is telling us here that it's these hedonistic, it's these self-focused passions that are at war within us. Now that's harsh language. The Apostle Paul, he warns his companion Titus. He says this about these same kind of passions in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And so we need to recognize, church, that it's in these self-centered desires that had once kept us sinfully enslaved. And it's the same thing with these believers here. But look at verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And so the type of language that James is using here about these believers, he's even saying here that they're murdering others for their selfish passion. But I believe that seems to be pointing here to intense verbal conflict. Now there's some debate over this, and it's possible that these fights could have escalated to murder. However, based on the context of the text, and based on what we've seen earlier in chapter 3, where James is talking about the use of the tongue as we've gone through this series, and based on the original language, I believe that what he's talking about here is that people were in such intense verbal conflict within the church that they could be considered to be murdering one another in their hearts. Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22, everyone who is angry and has hate in his heart with his brother is liable to the judgment on account of murder. And so friends, that's where I believe a spirit, a spirit of bitterness can eventually lead us. If we become critical, if we start to look at others, we can get to this point of being guilty of murder in the sight of God with hate in our hearts. I think all sin, even the smallest sin in our hearts, it escalates over time. And that simple dislike that you had towards someone else or that simple dislike that we may harbor in our hearts, it can lead us to the place where we're getting to such intense conflict that in the sight of God, we are guilty of murdering our brothers and sisters. Now look back at verse 2 again. It's interesting here because James goes on. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now coveting here is another word for envy. And if we're being honest, you know, when we start to idolize, when we start to desire what others have, we can easily find ourselves in this pattern of worldly sin and it can escalate in its evil. So as an example, I know for me, it's so easy to focus, for example, on the endless scroll of social media. That's just one example in our times today. We can begin to desire others' vacations or food or fancy restaurants or the perfect body type or cars or marriages or salaries. Really, the, the list goes on here, but as we keep our eyes focused on others, what can happen is subtly as believers, we can begin to start living again by our old sinful nature. We can take our eyes off God and we can turn our eyes to others. In fact, the most common word in these, four, in these first four passages here is the word you, you, you. It's talking about keeping our eyes on each other here in this world. And so we take our eyes off God, we turn our eyes to other, and by desiring the things of this world, we may start to dislike or even secretly envy and start to hate our brothers and sisters. Instead of looking to God, we can fester our worldly passions and our hearts and instead of coming under God's authority, trusting in his sovereign provision for our lives, we can easily envy one another. And so I believe this passage here today, it's a warning for us to recognize the roots, the, the seedlings of bitterness, or, or excuse me, of worldliness in our hearts in this way. Now I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of Mark chapter 15, verses 9 to 10. This is where the Pharisees gave up Jesus Christ to the governor Pilate, Listen to, what was, listen to what's said here. And he, that is Pilate, answered the Pharisees saying, 
do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. And so it's the same heart of coveting. It's this heart of wanting what someone else has. The Pharisees coveted Jesus' power, his influence, his authority to the point of sending him to be crucified. And so for us, I know this is a heavy message, but we need to recognize our sinful desires. There is no room to covet or envy in the life of a believer, in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at verse 3. We're going to keep going here. We have to keep going through all these. Let's read that together. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so these believers here, James is saying that they lack prayer. But even when they do pray, it's with wrong motives. And so they're praying for personal gain. And thus, it is no wonder that a loving Heavenly Father has not granted their selfishly motivated prayers. Now, now listen, church. I, look, I don't advocate playing the lottery. I think God's word has a lot to say about gambling as a sin. But many, many years ago, when I first became a Christian, I was an immature believer in Jesus Christ. Occasionally, once in a while, I would think about playing the lottery. And I remember, to my shame, I used to wrongly pray that the Lord would help me win. Because you know what? If the Lord helps me win the lottery, then I can truly be generous to others, right? Then I'm truly going to have enough to serve those in my community, to help those in need. Now, you know, I'll just say this. What a fool I was. And I'm so glad that God never answered my prayers. Because in his perfect wisdom, I believe that he knew that if he had answered my prayer, it would have destroyed me. And then secondly, he knew my heart. He knew why I was asking for what I asked for. He knew the desires behind my prayers were actually, shamefully, selfish. And so this is the issue here. These believers were focused on their own personal gain. And again, I praise the Lord that he brought me out of that season. And through many years, he's grown me in maturity and repentance. But James' point to all of us here is that we ought to be praying to God and taking all of our requests to him. But secondly, whenever we do ask God, we ought to make sure that our requests come from a pure heart with correct motives. Now look, when God doesn't answer a prayer right away, or he answers it in our lives with a no, I know it's difficult, but it isn't because he doesn't love us. He does that because he knows our heart. He knows what's best for his children. Remember, James is talking to believers here, right? Let's look at verse four. Now this is God's indictment on his people through James. Look at this together. Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friends, this is the heart of this passage. All of our evil desires, all of our self-centered prayers for self-gain, this all comes from a love for this present world. God here is saying that those who love the things of this world are in fact spiritually adulterous and that friends of this world, if we seek to be friends of this world, we make ourselves enemies of God. Now, I think we need some context here in this, because I think it's as simple as this. In this world today, we use that term friends very, very loosely. You know, a lot of us have, you know, a thousand friends online or whatever it may be, but 
in the ancient world, when two people were friends, they were deeply intertwined with one another. Friends represented each other, and they fought for each other's interests. That was the concept of friendship, is that they, they were aligned in values and thought patterns. That's why when the Jews said to Pilate, he initially refused to prosecute Jesus, but the Jews said to him, if you don't take this man, then you are no friend of Caesar. See, that's a big deal. Because a friend of Caesar had political benefits. A friend of Caesar was protected by Rome. A friend of Caesar kept Caesar's interests at heart and was protected by Caesar. He represented Caesar. And so friendship meant something very serious in the ancient world. And in the same way today, we need to understand that if we are friends of the world, then God considers us to be intertwining ourselves with the world, that we are being spiritually adulterous against him. Now, we don't have time to open up this concept more, but if you go through, and this may be some homework for tonight, but if you go through the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, it speaks to this and how the nation of Israel committed adultery against God and the pain that is caused to God's heart by this. And so friends, we break the heart of God when we keep our eyes on ourselves and when we keep our eyes on this world instead of our eyes on Christ, we break his heart. Remember what 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says to us. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so this world, its values, its hopes, its systems, they are completely contrary to God. Until Christ returns, the devil has reigned over the desires of this world. And so remember, we are aligned with Jesus Christ, friend. If you've trusted in Christ and you're aligned with him, not this present world, that is passing away. So again, we need to be wise. We need to address the problem of worldliness in our lives by first recognizing worldliness. But now, let's look at verses five to six, and we'll see that once we recognize worldliness, we are now called to receive grace. To receive grace. Look at your Bibles now. Verses, four, verses five to six. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so James here, you'll notice the quotes in that passage. He's quoting this common idea that God is a jealous God. God jealously yearns over his spirit, which is the Holy Spirit that indwells in us when we're saved the moment we've trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You see, God paid the greatest price for you on the cross, and while salvation is a free gift to us, it did not come cheaply. The Son of God died for our sins to give us life, and so God has a right to jealously yearn for us, to jealousy yearn for the spirit that lives within us that he has given. You see, he isn't trying to restrict us, but he's giving us these commands for our own good. We went through this a bit earlier too when we, when we talked about the law of liberty earlier in James chapter three. And I believe this is why the apostle Paul, this is why I believe he can joyfully say that he is now a slave of Jesus Christ because he lives his entire life to serve God wholeheartedly, no longer for the selfish desires of this life because of God's love for him. And likewise, we can be the same way because of God's love for us. Now look back at the text. Verse 6 goes on to say, but he gives more grace. And so what does that mean? It means simply this, that despite our sin, 
despite our worldliness, God will give us the grace that we need. And so even if you're sitting here today as a believer, if you've recognized that you've been living in worldliness, or if you've had your eyes on this world and on one another but not on Christ, I want you to be assured that God's grace is available to you. And his grace here is greater than your sin. That's why he gives more grace. Verse 6 goes on to say, Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so those who are humble can receive the fullness of God's grace. You see, ultimately, I think God's word makes it very clear here, pride is the reason that we live in our passions. Pride is the ultimate source of our worldliness. Because you see, when we're proud, we're saying that we know better than God. We don't depend on him, and we end up consciously, or even sometimes maybe subconsciously, we end up putting ourselves on the throne, and we become like God in our own lives. And this is nothing new. It goes all the way back, folks, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. Remember what Satan said to Eve in the garden? Go ahead, eat the fruit. You will be like God. And then you see this throughout the Old Testament in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And frankly, friends, we see it in our world here today as well. And so these are just some common slogans that I found. I mean, some of this might sound familiar to you. You do you. Live life on your own terms. Don't wait. The time is now. Retire how you want. Live the life you choose. Make your own path. The list goes on. But you see, this is the point. The point is worldliness is rooted in the idea of self. It's rooted in our pride. And so that's why, I believe going back to the context of the book of James, that's why we can count it all joy when we face trials. We heard about in chapter 1 because trials are what keeps us humble. It makes us dependent on God. And when we become a humble people, we become people who can be used by God. And we can then receive the fullness of God's grace. So we can recognize worldliness. We can humbly receive grace. But now let's move on to our third section in verses 7 to 10. God's word now calls us to repent in humility. To repent in humility. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Church, the scriptures here give us some of the clearest promises of God. These promises are known as reciprocal promises. And what that means is if you do X, then Y is going to be the response. It is the promise of God. So look at the text. Submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so these are promises that we can hang on to as believers in Jesus Christ. Because we know that God always fulfills his promises. That's why James is telling us that despite our sin, we can receive grace by repenting, by turning in humility, turning back to God. That's how we put off our worldly ways. And so look, for those of you who are here today, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, then you simply do not have the spiritual resources to claim God's promises that are promised here. 
You cannot have the power to resist the devil or to be assured that he will flee from you. In fact, you cannot submit to God because you don't know who he is. But here's the news. If you're, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then I want you to understand this. You are totally separated from God because of your sin, as we once all were. But the Bible, and as we see in the book of James here, it's not a book of do's and don'ts. Yes, there are commands that God gives us to follow. But the Bible is a book of betters. It's a book of God's promises for us. And so what I mean by that is that God desires what is the best for us. And he uses his commands to show us the better way. Because he loves us. And so we can turn to God. We can trust in him. Because if we live the way that he desires for us, then we can have total forgiveness. We can have peace And we can have every promise of God available to us today. And so I implore you, if you recognize your sin, then if you haven't trusted in Christ right now in your seat, you can acknowledge to God in your heart that you've been following your own way and you can turn and you can accept Christ as Lord and Savior. This is the same Jesus Christ who came down from heaven. He lived the perfect life that you should have lived on your behalf. And he died a terrible death that you deserve in your place upon that cross, only to then be raised again on the third day. And so by trusting in his sacrifice, we can have our sins forgiven. And you can have the best promise of all, which is the promise of eternal life as a child of God. But back to verse eight now. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the promise. Look at that with me. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so, very practical question here. How do we do this? How do we draw near to God? I believe it's very simple. God is a person. We learn about a personal God in the scriptures. And it's true, we may not be able to see him right now until Christ returns or until we die, until we're with the Lord. However, Christ has revealed himself to us. And in the same way that you would be in relationship with one another or with another person, we can draw near to God By knowing God. How do we know God? We can know God by how he reveals himself to us, which is through his word, the Bible. And so by studying, by meditating on the word of God, we can draw near to God. Now also, we can speak to God in prayer. Constant prayer throughout the day. We see this in the scriptures we can also have dedicated times alone with him, praying scripture back to him, praising him for who he is, thanking him for his provision, or even confessing our sins to him. And so this is how we draw near to God. We, we serve a living savior who is present with us wherever we go. And we can draw near to him anytime through his word and in prayer. Now look, I, I did not grow up most of my life as a Christian. Uh, in fact, for the large majority of my high school years and uh, my early uh, years in university, Uh, I was an agnostic. And I had this idea that somehow there was this greater power, but even if there was a God, you know, he really wouldn't be concerned with my life. If God did exist, and he would sort of relate to me uh, in the same way that I relate to uh, an ant on an anthill. Why would God be concerned with me? But friends, this is the amazing thing about God. He considers each one of us And he invites us to walk in personal relationship with him each and every single day, moment by moment. You see, we don't deserve it, but this is the love of God. 
He promises us that if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And so this passage here, this is a call for you, believer in Christ, to enjoy the fullness of relationship that you can have with the one true living God. I look back at the text. James goes on to say this. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, I believe that the Jewish believers that James is speaking to here, they would have known this, what this meant. This was a radical call to repentance. You see, James lists the promises of God, but he's saying that in order to receive those promises, they need to repent in humility. Listen to Psalm 24, verses 3 to 5. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And so for us, friends, church here today, we as believers need to be living in active repentance. We need to humbly turn from our sin. Washing your hands here, it's talking about the external behaviors of sin that we need to repent from. But more so, when God says, purify your hearts, again, he's looking at our internal attitudes of sin. Some commentators call this how the Lord addresses both our deed and our disposition as well. And so the Lord is calling us to repent from evil externally and internally because most of all, he's considered with evil in our hearts. But like the beginning of today's passage, again, evil in our hearts, that's what leads to evil externally in our actions as well. And so when James says here to be wretched and mourn and weep, to let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom, I believe that this is a call to godly sorrow and godly repentance. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. He's writing here, he actually rebukes the Corinthian church who are living in sin. And some people are grieved from his rebuke. But listen to what he says to them. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so church, I know this is a hard message, but when we understand the weight of our sin, when we understand how the Son of God died a brutal, torturous death upon the cross, humiliated and mocked in our place for our sins, when we understand how our sin affects God and our perfectly holy Father, We must be sorrowful. We must be broken. We must mourn over our sin. You see, our sin is not trivial. It's not taken to be lightly. Sin in the life of a believer is a serious matter in the eyes of God. But look at verse 10. James goes on to say, Humble yourselves before the Lord. And here's another promise. He will exalt you. He will exalt you. And so the Lord, doesn't, the Lord here doesn't just leave us high and dry. He doesn't leave us in gloom. The promise here is that when we repent in humility, God will lift us up. And again, I think Christ is the greatest example of this when it comes to humility, when it comes to exaltation. He had no sin. 
He came humbly from heaven's throne in the likeness of man to serve and not to be served. And it's for this reason, the humility of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, that the Bible tells us that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above all names and to him every knee shall bow. And so in the same way, friends, when we repent in humility, we have the promise that God will then lift us up. He will use us. So, We've seen that in order to address the problem of worldliness, James says that we need to recognize worldliness. He says we need to then receive grace. And he says we need to repent in humility. But now finally, look at verses 11 to 12. We get one final directive here. And that's a reminder to reserve judgment. A reminder to reserve judgment. Let's look at verses 11 to 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so again, these believers, they were speaking evil against one another. They were judging one another. That's what that evil speech was. We don't know, we don't know exactly what, what, it's, what, what they were saying, but it's left general and it's open enough for, un, for us to understand here, similar to the first passages we saw, that the heart motivations of these believers were not good. People were fighting and quarreling, living in their old and sinful nature, but judging one another as well. And so church, I believe this. I believe that judging comes from a heart of legalism, especially within the church of Jesus Christ. It's us thinking that we know best. And so when we judge one another, we assume that we are the ultimate authority. Everyone must meet our standards because we put ourselves on the throne and we put ourselves in this ultimate place of authority in another person's life. And this is why secretly judging others or even openly judging others says that you think you are equal to the lawmaker and judge, as James says here. This is the heart behind any sort of critical spirit. And this is a terrible thing, especially within the church. And so I think we need to remember, we're each made in the image of God. And more so when we speak against a brother or sister in Christ, we are speaking against someone who Christ died for on the cross. Jesus Christ chose to enter into human flesh to suffer immensely for the sake of that very same brother or sister who you and I are prone to slander. Now, I want to be clear and make a point here. Not judging does not mean not calling out sin. There's sometimes this idea today that, uh, you know, only God can call out our sin, and then we can live however we want. But you do not see that in the scriptures. We simply don't see that concept. Believers do have a clear responsibility to state what is right and what is wrong. In Ezekiel chapter 33, you see this idea of a watchman. And a watchman has to tell his people when destruction is coming or when they themselves are engaging in acts of destruction that cause their own end. Or in Matthew chapter 18, you see this concept of church discipline as well. And then in the life of the Apostle Paul, he clearly calls out sin and he calls out what is right from wrong. But we need to understand there are core issues. And so, for example, preaching another gospel. That, we, we cannot accept a false gospel into the church. And so this idea here to stop, is, of judging, it is not to stop calling out truth from error. 
But the idea is that in our hearts, when we do call out error, we need to have the goal of restoration and love in all that we do. We need to have a goal of restoration and love to the people that we're speaking with. See, what matters to God is our heart attitude. And again, this audience in James chapter 4, they're being critical towards one another. They're not building up their brothers. And instead, they're calling out each other for the sake of tearing each other down to build up their own greatness. So again, I'll just say this, church. Restoration, love, and unity in the church needs to be the goal whenever we speak to one another. Look, we may land on different areas in certain convictions or certain matters of conscience. You may like a certain type of worship music or a certain style of dress. But when we start to judge one another, again, we place ourselves on the throne. And so if we're critical with each other, James here is saying we actually end up losing love and unity in the church. And we end up destroying our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another as well. And as James says, we end up no longer doers of the law, but false judges, not recognizing the one true judge who is God. So look, I think we can simply conclude our message today on two major thoughts. Uh, For all who are here today, I want you to know this. Our entire passage today points back to Jesus Christ. This is all about him. I know James can sound very practical, and there's a lot of practical commands for us here. But I want you to look back to Christ as you look through in the book of James. Christ was not consumed with the world like us. He was the epitome of godliness and the complete opposite of worldliness. He was full of grace and he gave grace to others. Christ had no sin and he walked in the utmost humility. And Christ reserved judgment for the right appointed time in the future and he deferred authority to the Father. So you see, we can't get through the book of James thinking that it's this book asking us to try harder. That would be the wrong way of looking at this. We need Jesus Christ. We are unable to do anything without him. And so friends, we need to turn from the world and we need to draw near to God today by looking to Christ, by coming to him in repentance and humility, by looking to his word, by spending intimate time with him in prayer, by drawing near to him. And then secondly, in Mark chapter 12, I want you to hear this. This is where the scribes, they come to Jesus and they try to test him and they say to him, what is the greatest commandment to fall? And so Mark chapter 12, verses 20 to 31, listen to what Christ says back to them. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, who is Christ, which commandment is the most important to fall? Jesus answered, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so the entire passage today, friends, it points back to loving God and to loving our neighbors. This is the summary. And we cannot do this. If we have our eyes on this world, if we have our eyes on ourselves, if we have our eyes on each other, we cannot do that. And so we need to repent from our worldliness. We need to turn our focus, our gaze today on Jesus Christ as we leave this place. 
This is the entire point of everything that is said in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. 